And we're back for another episode of Startup Hustle, a podcast for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs. If you want to start, own, or build a business, then you're in the right place. We bring you the real truth about what it's like to take something from concept to launch, from growth, innovation, experience, failing, or winning big, we've got you covered. So let's get down to business with another episode of Startup Hustle, brought to you by Fullscale.io. And we're back for another episode of the Startup Hustle. Today, I'm excited to be joined by Sean Parsons. We're going to be talking about startup tips for non-technical founders today. And, you know, I'm the founder and CEO of Fullscale, and we do software development for dozens of other tech companies that are in startup phase or scale-up phase. A lot of our customers actually could probably use John's help. We have a lot of, you know, non-technical founders as well as customers, and so I'm excited to, to learn some things today and probably pass his name on to some of our customers at Fullscale. Um, you can check us out at Fullscale.io. Well, Sean, welcome to the show today. Awesome. Thank you for having me, Matt. Yeah. So tell me, um, you know, you you now work as a consultant and and you're building courses and content for non-technical founders and excited to talk about today that today. But curious, how did how did you get here? What what did you do before this? Yeah, so I've been a professional engineer for 10 years and I'm actually a self-taught engineer, uh, so I don't have any kind of formal education background, you know, self-taught. Uh got into engineering and it immediately became my passion because it's just, um, it's a very creative, I would say, space where, you know, you're kind of in charge of your destiny. You're right in front of the keyboard and you are the master. So it's a very interesting space to be in. But nevertheless, um, throughout my career, I, I ended up picking a lot of like little startup gigs, working for different startups. I really like that high energy space where everything is interesting. There's very little red tape. And, it, you know, it seems like movement is just, it happens so quickly. Getting stuff and I, and done. I really, getting stuff done. And it's just like, you know, let's ideate, let's iterate, let's do it, let's push it out. And like, you see like four or five code deploys in a day. And like, that's just unheard of in like the enterprise space. But what I did eventually come, uh, come across is that, you know, I, a lot of non-technical founders, uh, were struggling with, I think, managing their resources, um, conveying their ideas to their team. And, um, they got taken advantage of by by engineers that you know became keen that they were like oh this person's not technical so you know and um so what what eventually happened is after i left corporate after 10 years i decided to pivot to how can i help this community right how can i provide education to be able to help non-technical founders be more successful and i created a course which has 10 modules it's about 6 hours long um, and it contains a lot of different topics that cover idea distillation, dependency identification. Um, you know, you take your feature tree and you you distill it down and filter it using a value and effort matrix, and then further with an Eisenhower matrix, which really allows founders to be able to dial in and say, where should I put my energy, right? How can I take my time and put it forth in the most concerted effort way, right? So, and that's one of the things I noticed founders kind of struggle with is they're kind of all over the place. They don't necessarily, which it's kind of natural in a startup environment. I get it, but being able to be able to hone in and focus a little bit more can be incredibly helpful. Let, 
Yeah, let's let's talk about this topic for a minute because I feel like this is one of the hardest things as a founder is the features, right? Like you want to do everything. You want everyone to yes. be a customer. You want to you exactly. You don't you don't want to say no to anything, right? But exactly. The problem is every time you say yes to something, you're you're automatically actually saying no to a lot of other things, mm. and and startup founders really struggle with saying no, right? They they want to help everybody, but odds are they may not get where they originally wanted to go because they keep getting pulled, pulled off right. the original direction. Right. And I think that's why having some type of process, you know, and I know people don't like the word process and I'm not a big fan of it either, but some kind of rudimentary process of how a feature gets decided, whether it gets introduced or not, um, where you go through some kind of exercise where you determine how much value does this feature provide objectively and unbiasedly too. And that that's right. a very important part. And I think that is also one thing that I think founders struggle with too, is they, I know we all think our product is the best thing since sliced bread. I, I get it, you know, but I do think stepping back and being a little bit more objective about does this thing potentially provide as much value as I think it does? Um, and how much time is it going to take to implement this thing? If it's going to take a lot of time and it doesn't provide a lot of value, you probably shouldn't do it. So I think having some level of process and filtering down these feature ideas um, so that you can you can confidently say this is the right direction or this is the right feature that we well, should implement. And and I love the analogy of it's it's like you're climbing the mountain and every new feature you build, you're like adding it to your backpack, right? It's like mm -hmm. one more thing you, you've got in your backpack because now you get to create documentation for it. You got to train for it. You maintenance for it. There's going to be yep. bugs. There's going to be all these different exactly. things that nobody thinks of. And I yep. see this all the time in the teams I work with that, there's all this debate and bugs and problems with features that when I look at them, I'm like, why in the world did you ever even build this? Like, why Agreed. is this even a feature? Why, why is this a bug? Like, we spend so much time on this edge case nuance feature thing that like one of your customers uses, right? And the problem is for a lot of companies, their backpack gets filled with a lot of these things, right? They get a lot of these things in their backpack, which just weighs them down. Yeah, and I think I think that's also related to a a certain type of pride of trying to own everything that I don't think is necessary that we try to carry as founders. Right? Yeah. Like we'll see a service and and this is like engineers are super guilty of this, like myself included. We'll see someone charging like $20 a month for a service and I think I saw one of your one of your video podcasts where you said the same thing and I was just like that's so true is it's so hard to sell to engineers because we believe that we can reinvent or re-implement something yeah. in a weekend, right? So you need to be cautious of that because what you're paying for actually when you go and buy a service is you're paying to not build it yourself. You're paying to not have the headache of maintaining this additional piece of software, the stability of it, adding new features to it, making it more scalable, highly available, that's what you're paying for. So if you're paying $75 a month for a real-time chat service, let's just say, uh, for example, as a feature, just pay the $75 a month. Do you know how annoying and complicated it is to try to rebuild a real-time chat service and then have your team try to maintain that and continuously add features to it? If yeah. that's not part of your core value to your customers, you don't want to be spending your time on that. And you know, What's crazy is I meet entrepreneurs though 
that believe they have to build all of it. They're like, I want control, all of control and all these things. And they're like, I'm going to build my own billing system, my own chat system, my own support system. It's like, I'm like, dude, are you going to rewrite like Microsoft Excel too? Like, where do you draw the line here of like, this is crazy, you know, but people, there are some entrepreneurs that are out there that are like that. But I think the key point is, is you got to focus on what brings like value and different and differentiation Mm -hmm. to your customers, right? If it doesn't bring like strategic value to your customers, you're like, why would you build your own billing system or your own chat system? Like you can buy those things off the shelf for a very low cost. You know, you need to go focus on what is a differentiator to your customer that you're trying to serve. Exactly. And I think, I think you, you know, you have to get into that place where you're honest with yourself. You sit down and you really think about two very important things, which is what is your unfair advantage in the market? Like what, like, what do you bring to the market? Is it your industry background? Is it the fact that you are friends with 10 VPs in the tops, like let's say 20 companies or something like that, that is going to allow you to penetrate the market easier if you did have a product? What is your unfair advantage, right? And then on top of you knowing what your unfair advantage is, what is your unique value proposition, Right? Like what is unique about your product in the sense that differentiates your product from the other ones in the market? And for some people that might be they provide a white glove treatment for their customers. Like maybe they they provide like a a, a one month, you know, dedicated engineer to help them with onboarding. Like you you have to figure out what is what is your unique value proposition to the market and what might set you apart to make and you have to kind of tie that in with your customer segment too. So if you provide kind of like white glove treatment, you're probably not going to go after like the low end, the low tier of people because they're probably not going to be willing to pay for that also. Right. So it kind of, you know, your unique value proposition should be catered towards your customer segment also. So if you're going after enterprise, providing white glove treatment makes a lot of sense because they they love that kind of stuff. Having a dedicated person, you know, having a dedicated contact and support. So you just got to go through that mental exercise. So what other tips do we do you have from your course in regards to product and, and features? Uh, so when it comes to products and features, uh, we go through several different exercises where we, we create like a feature wish list, which I, I love going through this exercise where no idea is a bad idea and you just throw all of these yeah. features on a wall. And I hate what happens a lot of times with founders is, they they try to block their creativity by trying to introduce complexity and time too early. Get all of those ideas on a wall first. Don't even think about how hard it would be to implement or anything. Just get them out. And then you can go through that kind of filtering process where you figure out how much value, how much time. And then you can go through maybe something like an Eisenhower matrix, which I go through in the course too, where we can then you can distill it down e- even further and say, which one should I work on first, right? Because knowing which ones are good to execute on is one thing, but then you need to add some level of structure and that transitions into kind of like a project management. Which ones do I, should I tackle first? Um, one of the other things that I do is I do feature decomposition, which I think is incredibly important because that allows you to transition over smoothly into project management. So knowing what features you want to implement is important, but being able to decompose those in a way that allows your team to execute efficiently and concurrently and even possibly parallel as possible is important for you to be able to have velocity. So we cover well, quite a bit of that the, in that course. 
I think one of the struggles there is you talk about all your ideas, the planning and the roadmap, which all sounds great. But as a non-technical founder, how do they even figure out how long it's going to take to accomplish those things? Right. So time so then is like, okay, first mm-hmm. week I'm going to do this thing, the next week, the next thing, the next week, the next thing. But then in reality, it might be months or years, right? Like, mm-hmm. Yeah. So like the actual technical time frame of execution is a difficult thing to know as a non-technical founder, but uh, having a framework of, de- you know, being able to unravel these features and determine kind of wh- how it's sequenced. I think is an incredible first start, which I don't even think most technical founders get to. They just like, these are the features I want to implement. And then what happens is they eventually move that over to the developers and the developers fill the gap. But I think that there's a lot to be gained by a non-technical founder going through that mental exercise of getting more in a product mindset, because it'll allow you to convey your ideas better to your team, right? You don't want to be having these ad hoc communications on Slack about features to your developers you want to be able to convey them properly. And I, I would say in a more uh, professional manner than I see a lot of non-technical founders do. Um, so in terms of being able to sequence, like this is going to take a week, this is going to take to two weeks. I do think you would need some kind of technical help at that capacity. Are there any frameworks out there that help break that down though? Like, you know, when you're looking at a project, you're like, hey, I probably need to build a yeah. UI for this thing. It's going to have to save to a database. It's got to call this third party web service. Like, is that even too complicated for for the for non-technical founder? Or are there some basic frameworks like that that could help them say, okay, this kind of thing probably takes a week or two, this kind of thing takes a week? Like Yeah. Like it would be it would be interesting if somehow there was something out there that would say, like, say two, you know, OAuth authentication normally takes like two weeks, right? Or some something that would give, you know, non-technical founders a ballpark to be able to gauge whether their development team is either being productive or maybe they just don't know, right? They don't know how to implement OAuth and it's going to take them longer to be able to implement. But I'm not sure if a product exists out there for them to be able to say, this type of work takes this long, especially when there's so many industries. I think that'd be pretty a complicated thing to be able to grapple. Maybe like the basic features like authentication um, and things of that nature. But I think once you pass an auth, once you pass authentication, you start getting into the realm of like what your actual application is and how you deal with certain problems. Like your preferences system is going to be different than another applications, like how you sure. deal with preferences. So like once you pass auth, um, it starts to become like your actual own IP, I would say. And it's kind of a little bit more vague as to how long something yeah. should take. Well, I'm I'm sure you've heard of this. There's this law, and I don't know if I pronounce it the right way. It's called it's a half half stater's law or half stater's law. I don't mm. know how you pronounce the guy's name. I'm sorry, but it's a law that basically <laughs> says that even when you plan out how some how long something's going to take, and you feel like you have done the right job of planning it all out, it mm-hmm. still takes like twice that long. For sure, a hundred percent. You heard this law before. <laughs> I didn't I haven't heard this law but I've I've lived the law. <laughs> okay? Every every guesstimate is yep, I would say at least probably twice as um twice as wrong, right? So if you think it's going to take a week, it's probably closer to two and maybe even longer. Um and another another way that I like to describe this is the rule of 90s, right? It's like the first 90% of the project takes 90% mm-hmm. of the time and the last 10% takes 90% of the time <laughs> because yeah, it's inevitable sure. with software, right? Like you, you think it all works, but then you're like, okay, how do we deploy this thing? We didn't QA it and we find all these bugs right. and we forgot about this thing. And like, 
all that work is like a hidden the, the last 10 mm-hmm. you know 20 percent of the work ends up taking as long as the first part of the work yeah i think that's like kind of the polish phase right the polish phase certainly does seem to to take quite a Go bit of time and, and that's where you uncover because you start you start testing everything kind of holistically and co- you know how does everything interact cohesively together as an entire experience and that's where you can uncover a lot of these issues but that is that is essentially what you're selling to someone is the entire cohesive experience so the 90 percent is incredibly important get that done as quickly as possible but that last 10 percent truly is what you're what you're selling to someone is that entirely holistic and cohesive product well and, and, and this is why you hear people talk about technical debt and all these things too is you know, if you don't finish that last 10, per 20, 10 or 20% of the mm-hmm. product, eventually you get a product that is just like, feels like it's half baked, right? Like mm-hmm. has all these little bugs and all these little things that just don't quite work the right way. And it's because they didn't do the polish as, as you, as you yep. describe it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And it's, I think it's imperative to try to do things. I know velocity is incredibly important, especially when you're in that startup phase, resources and time are like the most precious thing that you have, right? Your time to market, you know, how quickly can you get your features in front of your customers? But I think it's imperative that you try to make good technical decisions along the way, because it is very difficult to change technology down the road. The more lines of code you add, the more decisions that you make, it is just a lot harder. And there's a lot more things that you have to consider at that phase. And it's going to be exponentially more expensive to try to do that. And I've seen that a lot with startups that They've hit, they've hit their, you know, their post revenue, they have customers, but they're pretty unhappy with their architecture. There's a ton of technical debt. They have hundreds of thousands, close to a million lines of code, and no one has any clue how to unravel the beast that they have created. And a lot of the people that were there from the beginning that understood it at a better level are gone. And now you're in kind of a dangerous space where you're still trying to add value to your customers but no, no one developer understands the system well enough to even do a rewrite. It, it's not a good place to be. It's very important that you try to make good decisions along the way. And it's hard and you're never going to make all the right decisions, right? You just have mm-hmm. to do the best you can. And to some degree, you may have to pray a little bit along the way. <laughs> yeah. And to, <laughs> to non-technical founders, I would recommend going to like uh, tech meetups and stuff like that and befriend seasoned engineers that you can tap, you know, into when it comes to questions that you have along the way. So for instance, they might not be the person that you hire, but they can be a resource for you uh, as technical decisions are being made along the way. You can always have, you know, this outside uh, unbiased person to be able to gut check the decisions that are being made, you know, and I I think that's incredibly important. Um, So I would definitely recommend that. Yeah, there's a lot of value in having a consultant, fractional CTO, literally anybody that can help be your your sounding board and and help you navigate through these things is super super valuable. So one one of the things you mentioned earlier that I wanted to talk about some more was how do you talk to software developers? Cuz I feel like they don't they don't I don't want to say they don't speak English, but they don't speak the same English that most people speak. Software developers are are a different breed to work with. So as a non-technical founder, what kind of tips do you have for working with software developers? They very clearly speak English. That's not what I mean. But they're they're just different. They think differently and communicating with them is differently. What, What kind of tips do you have? 
Yeah. So my tips are going to be based off of my personal experience uh, working with non-technical founders that I think did not manage their relationship very well with engineers. Um, I think having a, a clear set of boundaries is incredibly important. So I have noticed uh, as the relationship potentially progresses with engineers I, you know, and the reliance because they're non-technical, these founders, sometimes they can unnecessarily bombard their developers' personal devices with, I would say, not super important questions all the time. And this can cause some strain and friction in that relationship. And remember, uh, if you don't have a redundancy or contingency plan in place and you're you're potentially annoying this person when they're out outside of work, you know, maybe having a slice of pizza with a friend or, you know, with their partner uh, all the time, you're just bombarding them with questions. Maybe that maybe that irks them enough to where they decide to leave you. So I think having boundaries is incredibly important. Um, I think having some level of structure, engineers like structure, they like repeatable patterns, they like predictability. So that's why I think having some level of project management is incredibly important. Um, you know, and that's why, you know, in my course, I go through that exercise on how to take these features, distill them down and be able to sequence them out. And later you can fill those in after you have some type of requirements and things of that nature. But providing some level of structure is incredibly helpful and maintaining authority. And this is one that I think non-technical founders, it's hard to do. And part of the reasons why I also created the course was because there's that high dependency on technology. I think a lot of times non-technical founders lack confidence in those kinds of conversations. And what I have seen happen is they get steamrolled by the developer, where the developer eventually takes the reins and is making some very important decisions yeah. that, yep. that impact the outcome. Um, they're making business decisions now. They're making business decisions now. And all of a sudden that relationship is, is you don't know what it is. Like, I don't know what it is. It's, it's kind of confusing. And I've gone into that space several times and um, a big, big, big one for non-technical founders, Learn to be able to check your developers' contributions, okay? Part of my course goes over this too. You know, if you're using GitHub, Bitbucket, all of these platforms, they follow the very similar kind of pattern where you can see a developer's contributions. You can see how many commits they're making to which repository. I have seen a lot of times developers take advantage of the fact that, you know, the founder is non-technical and they'll work for multiple projects and build them full 40 hours a week while contributing to private repositories. And what happens is you're getting, you're paying full price for half the velocity, right? So the developer right. is going off and, you know, earning another salary uh, and, you know, making progress on someone else's project yep. and not fully um, committing to your project. So, you know, empowering yourself, that's what this kind of course is all about, is empowering non-technical people to feel more confident in those types of, uh, in that environment. I do want to take a second to remind everybody that this podcast today is brought to you by FullScale.io. If you're looking to hire software developers for your startup, scale up, whatever kind of company you have, we provide IT staff augmentation. We have over 300 employees in the Philippines working for lots of people. You can check us out at FullScale.io. So you you mentioned a couple of things earlier. I want to go back to you talk about boundaries and structure. And I think one of the hardest the hardest problems as a software developer is when you're working on a project, the project, sometimes it takes a day or two, sometimes they take days, sometimes projects mm -hmm. takes, can take weeks, right? If it's a big, mm -hmm. if it's a big thing. And there's nothing more frustrating for me as a developer if every other day 
I hear from you. We need to do this thing. No, forget that. Now this thing's the most important. We need to sign up this customer. I just promised them this thing. It's got to be done in a week. Like that constant change exactly. is terrible. It, it is like the worst possible thing you can do to the developer. Yes. Imagine like you're remodeling a house. Like you have carpenters in your kitchen and they're building cabinets. And like every every day you come by and tell them to build different cabinets. Like right. they're just going to quit. Like nobody wants to do this, yeah. right? There's got to be a plan. There's got to be a strategy. Exactly. And you got to give them time to work, right? You got to right. give them time to do their thing. And in a bigger company, you get layers of management here and, and they get mm -hmm. some kind of shield and defense, you know, from some of these things that right. go on. You know, it's just normal. People have a lot of ideas. Mm -hmm. And I think part of the struggle as a founder is you want you want to use them as your and I've had this problem a lot. I'll be honest in the past. You want to use them as your sounding board, right? Like I want to mm -hmm. go by and, and tell people, hey, I had this idea. We could make the product do this. We could make it do that. The developers don't know what to do with that. They don't know right. if this idea, they should drop everything that they're doing and go do what your idea is. Right. Or if it's just a brainstorming conversation. Exactly. They really struggle. You know, back to your point about authority, some people struggle with that. They don't know like, oh, his idea of the day, is that what I should be doing? And so that's something something I would highly recommend to people is always think about those conversations and the interactions you have with other people, even if they're your own employees, they're outside contractors, anyone is, they may not be able to handle those brainstorming and idea conversations and that constant change of direction is extremely disruptive to them. They just don't even know what to do with it. And that's where you're better off working with somebody else to kind of have those brainstorming and idea conversations, get a strategy, and then go back to the team and have a more thought out strategy. Yes, absolutely. I agree 100% on all points. I think it's very important to try to also control your emotions. I know that's easier said than done, but it if you can control the anxiety that you have in launching your product, I mean, you're, you're, you're going to have ideas pop in your head all the time. But you yeah. want to make sure that you don't distract your team that's focused on execution on the idea that you had maybe a day before or a week before, yeah. like what, like whatever, right? And that's why I think also not depending on one person, like if that is your developer, they're focused on execution, okay? Right. Like when I say like not depending on like one person, it's a multifaceted thing. It's in a sense of like, are you depending on them solely on for execution? If they decide to leave, you don't have an executor anymore. But you don't want to overwhelm this one person as your product person, your developer, your QA person, your infrastructure person. They are, you know, you don't want them to be absolutely everybody because they're going to feel overwhelmed. And eventually what's going to happen is they, they will burn out, you know, and yeah. they're not going to be able to take that. And you want to try to, even in, even in a startup, tr try to provide a balanced environment where everyone is able to execute at a high caliber and a high capacity for their job function, right? You want your developer pumping out your feature sets and in your code. And if you're constantly pulling them into two hour kind of brainstorming sessions where you leave without nothing, because I don't know, like that's just how product sessions are sometimes. Yeah. And <laughs> um, that's just two hours that, you know, they weren't able to, you know, execute on something that it was clear as day that they should be executing on. You know, so I want to go back to, to try to balance that. I want to also go back to you. You mentioned authority and confidence. And I think that's an, another really great topic that as a startup founder, you know, I have a, a big vision for what the product should do. And I'm very opinionated about what the product should do and maybe how it should work. 
And then the other side, you have a developer that might also be very opinionated about the code and be very technical. And there's a huge gap between those people, right? Yep. Because the the software developer could choose, like, make really terrible decisions about the tech mm-hmm. stack, the database that gets used, the, the way that the, the code is written, all that kind of stuff. And you have no idea, right? As the founder, you have no idea. And sometimes it doesn't matter that much. And it, it's kind of like, whatever, it's it's all opinion, opinions anyways about what is good and what's bad. But right. they can make really disastrous choices as well. But the I think you really hit it before, too, is you, you get the a big power struggle there. And... Mm-hmm. Sometimes you you feel like you get taken hostage by the developer, right? Because they, yes. if they're like overly opinionated about how things need to be done. I'm curious if, if you've, have you seen any horror stories here where this has gone wrong? Absolutely. So I've seen multiple horror stories, which I can share with you here. Uh, I know of a founder that is two years into building a very simple mobile application, has a developer in Honduras that has taken the reins in terms of the, the, the dynamic, right? That, that kind of dynamic where it's unclear who's actually leading the product, who's in charge, who's the founder, it, everything. Like it's very, very unclear. It's, it's not a good place to be. I kind of went into that space for a little bit and it was very uncomfortable for me. And I can sense that there was an incredible amount of tension between the developer and the founder, but it's so, it's like this, somehow this developer has found a way to keep the person who's paying them hostage. It almost reminds me of like, have you seen those shows where you'll see like where, where somebody gets like held hostage for like 10 years, but like they somehow create some kind of emotional attachment to who's like, yeah, you know, it's like being it's, in a bad, a bad marriage or something. Right. But somehow they still keep going. I, it's like kind of weird to me and I, I can't quite wrap my head around it, but I know that earlier on, there was a large dependency on this developer and that allowed that developer to maybe grow into a role and maybe assert his dominance on top yeah. of this founder and is now steamrolling this founder. Him. And now they're scared to losing him. And that's exactly what happens where, you know, I come in, I have a conversation with the founder and there is this enormous amount of fear. And I don't know if this fear is just baked into his mind or it's also being introduced by the developer. I I, I don't really understand, but there is like, I can't replace him. He knows too much of the code yeah. base. And yep. I'm looking through the code base and it's the most simple thing ever. Yeah. It is literally the simplest thing ever. Uh, the easiest thing for someone to jump in and be able to start making contributions to. They're, they're, because back to my point about making sure that your developers are contributing to your project, I was able to highlight that this developer was probably spending only 20% of his time working on this project and contributing 80% of his time committing to private repositories. Um, so you want to, you want to try to, you want to try to be cautious of, of that type of dynamic, um, because where it leads is never, is never good. And the other horror story I've seen too. Oh, sorry. I was going to say, I I think it happens a lot in these situations where you have a non-technical founder and they just have like one random developer Mm -hmm. and that one random developer, they feel like they can't do without, right? Like that, that is the guy. And, and they are scared to death to lose them, right? And so, yeah, it's like a bad marriage almost. Absolutely. Sorry, and one of the things that you want to be cautious of too, which I cover in the course, is owning your own IP. One of the other horror stories I have is I've seen a you know a founder get held ransom for you know his code, 
because the developer was developing the entire application on his own private GitHub repository. All of the accounts were using the developers. And this developer now has complete control and ownership of this product, right? So it's uh, it's imperative, I think, a, a small amount of education. It's not something that you need to spend a considerable amount of time. But I think if you are going to embark on the journey of building a technology product, I think doing some due diligence and educating yourself on how to be able to navigate that properly uh, will pay dividends, right? Like managing, if you're going to do a direct hire, like not working with an agency like Fullscale, you're, you would, you just unknowingly just took on an engineering manager role. Okay. So if you go out and you hire someone, it doesn't matter what, like if you go out and you hire a carpenter, if you go out and hire a doctor and you did a direct hire, you are now a manager, right? And I think a lot of founders don't really realize that they're just like, this is an engineer. They know exactly what to do. I just got to hire them. And, you know, off to the races, they're, they're just going to do things. And that's not how it works. And managing is a multifaceted thing too. Like how do you keep people inspired? How do you keep them excited about doing the work so that they keep contributing at a high level? Like it's not literally just project management, right? If they come into your team and they start producing at a high level and you're like, wow, this person is producing at a high level for me. I'm so glad I brought them on. You want to keep them there, right? And how do you keep them there? You keep them inspired. You keep them excited about your product. You you maybe show like, hey, and I think this is one of the areas that... Um, has caused me to maybe not really enjoy working for corporate too much because you feel as an engineer, a little detached from the people that are actually using your product. And I think it's incredibly helpful and it feels so good as an engineer because we sit behind our desks and computers all day when they can see like, this is the value that you're doing, right? This is here. It is like, you know what I mean? Because it's not quantitative. Like when we're just developing code and we're doing issues and we're cranking out these tasks and bug fixes, we don't really see the impact of our work right. for the receiving end. And that is a big morale booster when you can say, look at what your efforts do. Right. So um, that's a big part of managing a resource as well. So you mentioned earlier about working with a dev agency. I'd love to hear more from you about the pros and cons of, of working with a dev agency versus hiring a, a freelancer or mm-hmm. just some random developer. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a big decision. And um, I do have like kind of like a TLDR, but nevertheless, I can go through the pros and cons of both. If you're non-technical and you're in that phase where you know you do have capital, you're ready to go, and you're at that inflection point where you do have to decide between a developer and agency, a developer, I think that the pros are, right, the, the person works directly for you. So you you might be able to, to maybe mold that person a little bit more than an agency. Um, I think that you potentially could get, theoretically, a higher output from a singular person if you are able to build emotional equity with them, right? So you somehow get them to buy into your vision, your startup. And you're able to provide them some type of ownership of that. You might be able to tap into a certain emotional equity in them that they feel a sense of ownership. And they're like, this is somewhat mine. And that will allow them to execute at a a very, very high level. Right. And so those are kind of the pros. I think the cons and there's more pros, but I'm just highlighting a couple of them so that we don't spend an enormous amount of time going through it. The cons are, I think the personality issues are a lot more apparent when you're dealing with somebody directly and not through a company. 
So that's something to watch out for. If you're going direct hire, I think those types of issues surface more than when you're working directly with an agency. And obviously you're taking on an engineering manager role. And if that's not something you wanted to take on, you're prepared to take on, you're going to get some churn there because now you've hired this person who can execute, but you have no strategy or idea on how you plan on executing. So, you know, that's, yeah. that's pretty important there too. Something to consider an agency, a pro is there's a lot more accountability, a hundred percent, right? So like, this is a company, this is a business. They thrive on this. Like, this is what they do. They want to do a good job for you, right? They're going to do their, they're going to do their best to try to make you happy. Um, I've noticed that, you know, whether they do or not, the intention is always there and without a doubt, right? That they want to try to make you happy because it's in their best interest, and I would say a lot of times these agencies uh, provide some level of project management. So they might even assign a dedicated PM to your team, right? A project manager, which can help you, especially if you're in that early phase and you're still trying to figure everything out, unravel some of your ideas into executable tasks so that it can be given to the engineer so that they can focus on execution. So the TLDR is if you have some extra cash, because normally an agency does cost a little bit more than hiring direct, obviously it's a business, right? There's an overhead, but it, that doesn't mean that it doesn't come with more, right? So like just because something costs more doesn't mean it doesn't come with more. An agency does come with more. So if you hire an agency, you're going to feel probably less stressed about managing a resource and you're probably going to get a little bit more help on managing that resource to be able to execute efficiently. And they want to see your product succeed, right? Because if you think about it, that relationship the agency only has everything to gain if you succeed because the right. likelihood that you're going to add additional team members is high. And additionally, agencies normally work multidisciplinary roles. So if your product grows to the point where not only do you need engineers, but you need someone to QA, well, the probability right. that the agency has a QA person is pretty high and a designer potentially. Um, so I think there's a lot of stress alleviated by going the agency route. I know a lot of non-technical founders, they like to go, I think, the direct hire route. Um, but if you have the if you have the cash for it, I think that there's a lot of stress removed by going the agency route. Well, an agency is a lot different if you're talking about a US based hire versus somebody mm -hmm. who's over overseas and you know sure. Eastern Europe or India or Philippines or Latin America, wherever it is. You know, like I have a friend that owns a dev agency here in Kansas City. To hire one of his developers full-time for one month mm -hmm. will cost you $30,000, one person, right? Because he basically doubles their salary. I mean, mm -hmm. American salaries are very high. It's going to be ten dollars or $15,000 a month, and he basically doubles that, um, and that's his yeah. business. But he has a successful business. It's a small business. It's a hard business for him because not a lot of people are willing to pay that, but there are people that Absolutely. do, right? Versus mm -hmm. if you are hiring people like from, from full scale or, or for, for somewhere sure. else overseas, you know, the rates are, are way different. You may pay four or five, six, seven, eight thousand dollars a month or something like mm -hmm. that for a full-time developer. And then it's not, it's not near as expensive. And right. yeah, there is, you know, an added overhead and, and margin that these companies make, but it, they provide so much value for sure. You know, at full scale, we, we spend a lot of money in in hiring, you know, really bright talent out of college and training them up and all of their benefits and their um, like pension sort of stuff and all these mm -hmm. all these different things that we do. There's there's an enormous amount of investment that that we have in in the talent, right? And 
and it's a business. It's a long-term big business and it's not just a random freelancer. Right. And as you said, we're trying to do this for the long haul and have bigger teams and, and our reputation is super critical. Exactly. Um, One of the other things that, that we didn't discuss, I think is, is a really big thing that I hear a lot from people about like, Oh, I had developers from Upwork or whatever. And Mm -hmm. now they're interested in using, you know, a company like full scale is intellectual property and security concerns. That that's one of the main things I hear is, you know, if you just have some random developer on Upwork, they're always worried about security and intellectual property and all these kinds of things. Versus if you're working with an agency, you know, you sign, you know, a contract with the agency exactly. that covers all of those things. Exactly. Um, and now the agency is on the hook for that. I think that's another big differentiator for working with an agency as well. Absolutely. I think I think it's a little bit more clearer. Actually, I shouldn't say a little bit. I think it's a lot more clearer. I think when you walk away from the table agreeing to work with each other, uh, what's expected out of everybody, right? Like when you go and hire a freelancer, I think there's a lot of ambiguity around that. And it's kind of rolling the dice. You might have a great pick. You might not. Uh, and then, you know, how does that how does that relationship grow over time, right? Do certain personality traits and issues surface? And does your relationship sour, right? But I think it's easier when it comes to an agency to have a clear kind of, this is what I'm paying and this is what I'm getting. Uh, right. You know, and I think one of the other pros that, um, as it relates to agencies is normally agencies provide some kind of um, probationary period where they'll give you a developer, right? They allocate a developer yeah. to your project. You have like yep. 30, 30, 60 days, whatever it is. And that gives you the time frame for you to evaluate how do you work with this person? Are they yep. outputting 100%. what I expect? And things like that. So like, you don't really get that if you go and do a direct hire. You Like now you have to, in addition to... Right. And the amount of prospecting involved to even find someone that's willing to yeah. you know, come on at a startup phase when like the pay isn't very high, you know, and things like that. Like it's a lot of time taken away, I think, from other things that you could be doing in your startup to be able to, you know, get you move the needle forward. Right. Yeah. So, Well, I think there are a lot of ways to hire developers. Dev agencies is, is definitely one of them. You know, you can hire hire direct, you can hire local. At the end of the day, mm-hmm. as a company grows, they kind of need all of these things. Like it takes a yep. mix of all of these things to work together. Absolutely. And sometimes hiring somebody random from Upwork for some little project that takes a week might be the best solution, right? Mm-hmm. Versus mm-hmm. I need to hire a team that I want to have do this for the next five years is a different solution. Yeah. So that's why it, sure. it takes all of these things. Right. Well, absolutely. I've really appreciated having you on the show today. Um, Tell us a little more about your course and, and the services that you offer if, if people want to learn more about what you do. Absolutely. So the course is called Startup OS. I actually just recently finished it, so I have yet to actually officially publish it. But what I do plan on doing is releasing this course, which helps non-technical founders be able to prepare themselves for launching their technology startup. And it goes over a lot of really important ideas, such as idea distillation, dependency identification, project management, managing engineers, finding engineers to just really help prime non-technical founders for hitting the ground running and feeling a lot more confident in those types of dynamics and relationships. And then additionally, what I want to do is create a community, which is will be called Go to Market, which will help them as they transition potentially from the course, or maybe they're still early on to you know building their product and they want to be part of a community to get residual help 
where they can ask questions. How do I resolve this? I'm experiencing this with my developer. What's a good way to go about this? I feel like my developer is potentially contributing to another project. What is the best way to handle this situation? Things of that nature. Like things come up when you're developing a product, right? And, um, you know, having a community that you could tap into to to help you uh, along the way can be incredibly helpful. And then I'll have my consulting services, which I'm still um, I'm still figuring out what it is, but I would be able to provide engineering management and offload that completely. And that's that's a service I know that I'd be able to provide to be able to allow founders to just execute on different initiatives, maybe such as marketing business and, and things of that nature. That's fantastic. And I, you know, from our experience at Full Scale, again, you can check us out at fullscale.io. Individuals like yourself are hugely valuable to early stage startups that don't have an engineering manager, they don't have a CTO, or they don't have, you know, a really strong technical person on the team. Mm -hmm. Somebody like yourself is super, super valuable. I really, I really recommend it for sure. Yeah. And I just, I hope that I can provide value to this, um, to this community, these non-technical founders, because I think, I think the digital transformation, we talk about it a lot, but I think it's twofold. You know, enterprise companies are going to be modernizing their systems. But what I'm seeing is there's a surge in people that have a lot of expertise in their industries that have nothing to do with technology, but want to begin using it to solve problems that they're experiencing in those industries. And And I think that there's going to be a lot of new products that are created by these types of individuals. Unfortunately, they don't have a non technical background. So a little bit of help would help them go a long way. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today. Um, For those who are interested, we will have a link to his website and stuff in the show notes. Again, this was Sean Parsons. and, And thank you so much for being on the Startup Hustle podcast. Absolutely, Matt. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Startup Hustle is brought to you by Fullscale.io, helping you build a software team quickly and affordably. Make sure you reach down and hit that subscribe button, then come find us on Instagram. See you next time.